Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Happy New Year and welcome back to Magic Without Fears, the Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. And today we have a special episode to throw back to my commentaries on literature and research presented by EnochianGrimoire.com. Go to EnochianGrimoire.com for an introductory and comprehensive course of traditional and purist Enochian angel magic in the tradition of John Dee and Sir Edward Kelly. Now there's a lot of things we can say about this man called Edward Kelly. Today I want to look at him in relationship to Dee and Shakespeare and Prague. The source material for what I will be commenting on comes from, in part, Vincent Bridges. Thank you to him for his work, and I hope you enjoy my commentary. Act 1, he says, Kelly claimed that he was born on August 1st, 1555, and this matches Worcestershire records. Edward, son of Patrick Kelly, was christened on 2nd August, 1555, at St. Swithin's, Worcester. However, this Edward Kelly, who was apparently a clerk, died in 1577. This person was simply used, in a 16th century version of identity theft, to give Edward Kelly a verifiable identity. Worcester is also cited as the location of Kelly's pillory and ear-cropping for counterfeiting. However, the story is not contemporary and is mentioned only as a local legend by Nash in his Collections of the History of Worcester, published in 1782. I think it's very interesting, nonetheless, that Kelly claims to be born on August 1st, and we may as well take his word for it. Who knows? I, uh, he, it would make sense if he was forging his identity uh, for legal matters that he would choose someone close to his actual day of birth um, for the sake of of being able to continue and propagate the the lie. Again, I don't think it's verifiable that this is what he was thinking, but we're just gonna we're gonna suppose we're gonna see. Now, if he was born on August first, August first is a very special day. I remember one of the earliest things I read when I was first getting into neo paganism in the early nineties, and I read that if you were born children born on the Celtic holy days, you know, Samhain, uh, winter solstice, Imbolc, for example, and Lunasa, August 1st is the day of the festival of light, the god Lu, my personal Irish patron deity, and Lu and the Irish Harvest Festival on August 1st um, is a magical time, and children born on any one of these these days, or Sabbaths as they're called in, in the Wiccan literature, um, were considered quote-unquote beautiful. And I read that what was meant by beautiful was that they meant psychic. So it would track that Kelly was born on one of such days. I myself was born January 31st, so I missed February 1st slash 2nd and a day of being psychically beautiful, I guess. But my little sister was born that day, so um, at least one of us got the natural Celtic gifts of, of psychism. I think mine had to be developed from an early age. Now, in fact, in Dee's diaries, even though he is suspicious and mistrustful of Talbot, Kelly, Talbot being the first name that 
Kelly gave to Dee when they met in the summer of 1582, there is no mention of any cropped ears. Actually, one of the things I noticed on my second trip to Prague, which was uh, 2018, 20, 2019, so about, 10, about 12 years after my first trip to Kelly's Tower there, he has a, he has a big tower if you don't know that, um, they were very skeptical of the fact that he had ever committed those crimes or had cropped ears. The scholars in Prague seem to be uh, have decided that that wasn't the case, and that was later detractors uh, a la the tradition of Casabon and all those who wanted to make Dee and Kelly seem more disreputable than they might have been. But again, we don't know for sure as far as I can tell. Given the pressures of the moment, it is highly unlikely that Dee would fail to mention such an obvious liability. Indeed. Indeed, pun intended, <laughs> or not intended. It is uh, likewise the legendary necromancy incident in the churchyard at Walton Le Dale in Lancaster, which is also unsupported by any evidence but the 60-year-old testimony of his purported accomplice, Paul Waring. Kelly would later claim to be the Lord of Imani, and this points us in a different direction. It is a hypothesis that is equally impossible to prove or disprove, but it is plausible that Edward Kelly really was the legitimate or perhaps just disinherited son or nephew of Hugh O'Kelly, the High Chief, Prince of Uy, Maine, and the Irish High King. That is what he claimed with the title Lord of Imani which most scholars from Charlotte Fell Smith to Peter French and Francis Yates have previously considered to be just another of fiction of Kelly's. But the place did exist. Ancient Irish and a kingdom, and was ruled by the O'Kelly, head of the clan, for a fiction it is surprisingly real. I like the, the author's <laughs> view on that. Act 2. Kelly's years with Dr. John Dee are described in detail in Dee's diary. They met in March of 1582. With Kelly introduced as Edward Talbot and immediately began their angelic conversations. These continued after they left for the estates of Count Lasky near Krakow, which is in Poland, and picked up steam in the summer of 1584 when they arrived in Prague. D had several meetings with Rudolf II and his officials, some even explaining his angelic mission while Kelly worked at his alchemy. I'm not sure if D had more than one encounter actually with Rudolf II, who was the Holy Roman Emperor of the time. Um, I can't quite recall. I think he might have had more than one personal meeting, but he was famously ranting and raving about the apocalypse and the need for the kings and rulers to follow his lead and do what the angels told them, otherwise all was doomed. So, yeah, that's not going to necessarily get get you back invited back to the fancy parties. <laughs> By 1586, the politics at court had shifted, and Dee and Kelly were banished, ending up by that autumn at Rosenberg's estate near Trebon, Kelly claimed and demonstrated his alchemical success in late 1586 and announced probably at Rosenberg's wedding in 1587. The angelic sessions continued, including the infamous wife-swapping incident through 1588. By 1589, when D departs for England, Kelly is firmly settled as a knight of the empire and a bohemian nobleman. Act 3 
Edward Kelly was arrested in May of 1591 and held until October of 1593 at Krivoklat Castle. He was then pardoned and released back to his family in Prague, arrested again in 1596, and he was confined to Hnaven Castle overlooking the town of Most. He died either attempting to escape or from poison on November 1st, 1597. Edward Talbot and the Transformation into Edward Kelly Edward Kelly steps from obscurity onto the stage of the Elizabethan era on the 8th of March, 1582, arriving at Mortlake in answer to the fervent prayers of Dr. John Dee, Queen Elizabeth I's mentor, court astrologer, and creator of the idea of the British Empire, and reputedly the most learned man in Europe. Dr. D, as Christopher Marlowe would attribute to Dr. Faustus, had come to the end of human learning and longed for what he saw as a higher form of learning, communication with the angelic realms. I think it's not just a higher form of learning that he was seeking, but he was looking just to expand human learning and had reached the limits and therefore was also looking to angelic realms to expand what we knew about the realms of nature. The earliest surviving copy of Dee's Spirit Diaries opens with the heartfelt plea for, quote, the timely help of some pious, wise man and expert philosopher, end quote. Now that, of course, is in the prayer, which is a part of the preliminary Enochian workings if you do it from a Dee Purist perspective and use his uh, morning and evening prayer for sapientia, wisdom. What he needed was, quote, a good seer, and a scryer of spiritual apparitions in crystalline receptacles. In the brash, young Edward Talbot, soon to be Kelly, with his talk of fairies and the second sight, Dr. D found his seer. Dr. John D was born in 1527, and his formative years were colored by the religious turmoil brought on by the Reformation. D's family, through which he would later claim distant kinship with Queen Elizabeth, probably arrived in London in the wake of Henry Tudor's coronation as Henry VII. By the time he went up to Cambridge at 15, he was searching for a resolution to the problem of religious authority, seeking a type of spiritual science that could supply insight into the workings of nature by infusing the natural world with mystical meaning. After studying at Cambridge and Louvain, D achieved the status of Renaissance celebrity in 1550 with a lecture on mathematics and the spiritual aspect of numbers at the University of Paris. During the reign of Edward VI, D became involved in the political maneuverings around the throne, and by the summer of 1555 found himself in prison on an unspecified ecclesiastical charge. After Catholic Queen Mary known as Bloody Mary, of course, and her followers displaced the nine-day queen, Lady Jane Grey, following the death of the boy King Edward, times were tough for known Protestants, especially mathematicians and magicians, and especially those known to have cast horoscopes of the queen. Dee spent several months in prison. Over 600 others went to the stake for witchcraft and heresy, perhaps even Dee's own father. 
Dee survived the purge of 1555, as did his new patron, Queen Elizabeth I, who asked him to pick an auspicious date for her coronation. Curiously, she also gave his widowed mother an old house on the site of an ancient lake, a house whose title a few years later would pass on to Dee. He settled in at this family home, Mortlake, which would eventually house the largest library of its time in all of Europe. Incidentally, it's the same size as the one I had stolen from me, sadly though his books were probably a bit cooler. Only the great national collections of the next century surpassed it. The type of books he collected, everything from Hebrew grammars to classical mythology to Galenic and Paracelsian medical texts to works by Agrippa, show him as Elizabeth's the first chief intelligencer and philosopher in that specific Renaissance context where espionage meant everything, from cryptography to astrology to, in Dee's case, talking to angels. The logic of turning to supernatural forces for knowledge about the universe seems strange to our modern scientific sensibilities. This is a category of experience that science has labeled subjective and therefore suspect. To Dee's contemporaries, it seemed less unusual. The possibility of acquiring knowledge by revelation or inspiration was a vital component of the Renaissance paradigm. In the mathematical preface to his edition of Euclid, Dee asserts that man, quote, participates with spirits and angels and is made to the image and similitude of God. He also notes that there are powerful precedents for angelic communications. The traditions of Enoch and Estras, Abraham and Elijah and Moses, and, quote, sundry others, thy good angels, were sent to by thy disposition to instruct them. End quote. On the night of March 8th, 1582, as a Mr. Clerkson introduced his latest find to Dr. D, a prominent and awe inspiring display of the northern lights occurred. In his diary, D notes that the sky turned blood red, with sheets or clouds of deep red light flowing overhead from the northeast. D was so taken with the display that he apparently ignored his visitors, who returned the next night. The mysterious Mr. Clerkson was apparently acting as a talent scout, looking for D's scryer and expert philosopher. A few days earlier, Clerkson had introduced Thomas Robinson, a Cambridge student who would eventually write a long poem on the Stone of the Wise, which of course is the Philosopher's Stone for those who may not know that. Robinson was apparently not in the running as a seer once Kelly arrived, but he gives us a glimpse of the kind of people Dee was trying to recruit. Mr. Clerkson and his friend, now introduced as Edward Talbot, returned the next evening after dinner. Mr. Talbot attracted Dee's interest by claiming to be a talented in the second sight and to having a familiarity with fairies. He was invited back the next day to try his hand at scrying in Dee's crystal ball. This initial session was spectacularly successful that a strange and almost symbiotic relationship was cemented between the erudite and learned elder statesman, already a living legend, and the younger, more forceful and blarney-tongued visionary. That's Kelly. From this relationship would come 
quote, what is perhaps the most unusual magical literature of the Renaissance, according to Geoffrey James, the first modern-day author to try to look at the primary manuscripts in their historical context. Well, that's just not true at all. From their apocalyptic missionary journey to the Holy Roman Empire would come the seeds of the Rosicrucian movement and the Hermetic Revolution, which led to Europe's worst holocaust prior to World War I, the Thirty Years' War. And almost as a side event, they may have helped defeat Spain's Great Armada in 1588. If you want more on the Thirty Years' War and the whole Rosicrucian of it all, check out Francis A. Yates's The Rosicrucian Enlightenment. Some of her main theses in that wonderful book have been arguably disproven by academics today, but that doesn't change the fact it is just a wonderful history book, and uh, especially as it considers what the Rosicrucian mystics may have been up to at the time. So who was Edward Talbot, or Kelly, and why do we know so little about him? He appears on stage as an apparent con man, then rises to become a knight of the Holy Roman Empire, a landed noble of Bohemia, and apparently achieves the grand transmutation, the magnum opus of alchemical science. It should be opus magnum, of course, uh, correctly speaking. Most of what we know about Kelly comes through the filter of Dr. D, who is not always the most reliable source. One of the few scholarly attempts at resolving this enigma Michael Wilding's A Biography of Edward Kelly, the English Alchemist and Associate of Dr. John Dee, concludes that the, quote, errors, distortions, fabrications, and defamations in existing accounts of the life of Edward Kelly are too many for individual refutation. Even the most responsible commentators and historians have, upon dealing with Kelly, repeated these unsubstantiated and generally derogatory stories. And, of course, Wilding himself goes on to make some of the same mistakes. The first mistaken assumption comes from the name Talbot, by which Kelly was introduced to Dee. The Talbots were a prominent family in Worcester, and although there are no records of foreign Edward Talbot in Kelly's generation, Worcester has been cited as his birthplace. There are no records of an Edward or Thomas Kelly in Worcester either, so we must conclude that this identification is a dead end. Kelly himself would later claim that he was born in the west of Ireland, of Irish royalty, a claim that is no more unreasonable than that of Worcester. Worcester is also cited as the location of Kelly's pillory and ear cropping for counterfeiting. However, the story is not contemporary, and is mentioned only as a local legend by Nash in his Collections for the History of Worcester, published in 1782. It's like a hundred years after Kelly's <laughs> lifetime. There are more, more, much more. In fact, in Dee's diaries, even though he is very suspicious and distrustful of Talbot Kelly, in the summer of 1582 there is no mention of any cropped ears. And this was the point of the, the, the people in Prague when I was hanging out with them in 2019, there's just it's something that someone would have mentioned people would have mentioned it they say oh that's why he wore this long hat but yeah if you hang out with someone every day or you see them all the time you're gonna notice right it's not like people keep their hair and down and a special cap 
over their ears all the time. And if they did, you'd wonder what's up. And then you'd probably eventually find out because if they didn't tell you, you'd grow suspicious, you'd wonder what the gossip is, and then you'd, you know, it would become a thing. They may not have had social media back then, but they had courtly gossip and curiosity, especially when it seems someone with uh, claiming to be an alchemist and who was then knighted and given lands by the Holy Roman Emperor. If that person was sus, they would investigate that. And if any of them had seen he had cropped ears, it would have been recorded along with everything else they have recordings of concerning Kelly in Prague. In the entry for June 5th, 1583, the first appearance of Thomas Kelly, Edward's supposed brother, where an attempt to prosecute Kelly for forgery and counterfeiting, a common charge leveled at alchemists, is discussed. There is absolutely no mention of any previous conviction or punishment. And that's very, very odd. That's almost impossible. Given the pressures of the moment, it is highly unlikely that D would fail to mention such an obvious liability. Likewise, the purported necromancy in the churchyard at Walton le Dal in Lancaster is also unsupported by any evidence but the 60-year-old testimony of his purported accomplice, Paul Waring. The story first appeared in John Weaver's Funereal Monuments, published in 1631. The timing of the story's publication is curious, as Edward Kelly was not well known in England, prior to the work of Elias Ashmole and Merritt Cassabons in the 1650s, and therefore we might give the tale a bit more credence. These yarns were later collected by Louis Figuier in his 1860 compendium L'Alchemie et Alchemistes, and thereafter became part of the legend as stories too good to ignore, true or not. Indeed, this ability to accumulate layers of legends seems to be the main reason why an accurate history of this intentionally enigmatic figure is difficult to achieve. When we strip away the legendary backstory, we are left on the pages of Dee's diaries with a story of an amazing transformation. Edward Talbot literally reinvents himself as Edward Kelly over the course of less than a year. The initial angelic sessions lasted from early March 1582 until May 4th, within a, with a month's break between March 22nd and April 28th. In the April 28th session, Talbot Kelly announces that the angels want him to marry. The next session on May 4th is the last for a while, until November 1582, as Jane D. apparently discovered that Talbot had been lying to them. D begins to make inquiries, and by mid-July, he has discovered the details of the deception. However, on November 10th, D records receiving Kelly's second letter. There is no mention of a first, and this is enough to quiet D's suspicions. Soon thereafter, on the 21st of November, the angelic sessions continued. In that session, the angels, or maybe Kelly, gave D a new grind crystal. This crystal would be unused for months, as the next session was not until March 23rd. In the interval, on February 11th, Dee had visited with the Queen at Richmond, where he predicted the death of the Duke d'Alençon, and had several conversations with Sir Francis Walsingham, Queen Elizabeth's Secretary of State and Head Spymaster. It's interesting, 
because D is often given that title of head spymaster, but maybe he's the master spymaster and not the uh, secretary spymaster. <laughs> it is possible that he instructed by the Queen to continue the angelic sessions as a matter of national security. That's what this uh, writer thinks, at least. The session on March 28th continues the first hint that D was thinking of leaving England. Events begin to move swiftly after that. Kelly apparently discovers an obscure alchemical manuscript and a vial of the red powder under an old cross on Northwick Hill in Lancaster, a possible source for the necromancy legend. And of course, we know a lot more about this period and these uh, interactions around the red powder, thanks to P.D. Newman's wonderful books, um, Alchemically Stoned and especially... Um, Angels in Vermilion, the Philosopher's Stone from D to DMT, uh, goes into all the details of this, which are quite fascinating. This uh, was stuff was not known that P.D. Newman uncovered at the time that this text was written. And now, a word from our sponsors. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. The Queen herself and Mr. Raleigh as D spells it, stops in for a visit. Prince Albert Lasky, a Palatine, or Imperial Elector, of Poland, appears in late May and joins the Angelic Sessions, where he is informed that he will be the next King of Poland, which is not completely unlikely. On June 5th, Thomas Kelly arrives, along with the side note that Kelly is now married, although his wife has left and returned to her mother's house in Chipping Norton. Sometime that winter, Kelly apparently married the young widow, Joanna Cooper Weston, of one of Dee's wool-smuggling friends, John Weston. No marriage bans or notice exists, but when the entire household departs from for the continent in September, Joanna and her two young children are included. What we can infer from a close reading of Dee's diaries, alongside with the political and social history of the early 1580s in England, suggests that Kelly was far from the lonely charlatan of the legend. He seems to have broad connections, broad enough perhaps for Sir Francis Walsingham to vouch for him. Among the Elizabethan underground of spies, informers, 
and occultists. Of course, the use of the word occultist there doesn't make really any historical sense since that wasn't a word till the 19th century. There was no historical occultist before that. They would have used other terms like magicians or, well, cunning men more commonly. The episode of his impending prosecution for counterfeiting suggests that Kelly had a certain reputation as an alchemist, perhaps before his discovery of the red powder as a failed one. What seems clear, however, is that Dee and Kelly departed England for the continent and the Holy Roman Empire with the permission and support of the Queen and Walsingham. By that departure, Kelly had completely reinvented himself with a new name, a new family, and even a new horoscope, which seems to have chosen as which he seems to have chosen as much for the symbolism of the date and its astrology as for any exact correlation to Kelly's actual birth. Even his brother Thomas seems to be more connected to Johanna and her family than to any hint of a Kelly clan. Indeed, it was common for younger brothers to assume the name of their sisters' husbands in families without a strong patriarchal presence. Kelly may have even had a literally new brother to complete the odd menagerie. Thomas Kelly would stand by his quote-unquote brother, adoptive or not, to the very end. Kelly's relationship with his wife, however, would not be so supportive. Dee records that they had a terrible argument about a month before the departure, and the arguments and emotional tempests would continue right up until Kelly's death in 1597. By then, the persona of Edward Talbot, and his obscurity and marginal status in England would be far behind both of them. Joanna would have her moment of wealth and respect as the wife of Magister Kelly, the foremost alchemist of Rudolf II's Hermetic Prague. The story of Edward Kelly's rise and fall is at best a cautionary tale, but one full of high drama, adventure, romance perhaps, and a few odd twists and turns of history that no one could have expected. In many ways, his fame blends with and overlaps that of Dr. Dee's. The interweaving story of their time in Prague suggests in many ways the background of an important mythos of the mannerist and hermetic late Renaissance worldview. In order to understand Kelly and see him as he saw himself, and allowed his contemporaries to view him, we must turn first to one of the most far-reaching and deeply troubling magical legends, that of Dr. Faustus. But before we do, I think I should comment that the idea of Kelly as his rise and fall as a cautionary tale at best, I would say at worst, At best, you could attribute him to being one of the most successful magicians that's ever lived or scryers uh, that's ever lived, though I consider Kelly's participation in the development of the Enochian system and all Enochiana with D to be an indicator of his equality with D. I don't believe that D should get all the credit. I think in any magical venture like that, both people get equal credit. If there's any miraculousness in the information that they brought through you couldn't say it's all because of d's ability as a sorcerer or a magician or a cunning man or whatnot you can't say that because he wasn't the one doing the majority of the scrying so if you 
consider the numbers and language and and all the interesting things within that and i've done many podcasts with people who have analyzed that from scholars and phds to intellect intelligent members of mensa there's just a lot there and that came through kelly so to call him a cautionary tale it's more like he's one of the most successful and remembered magicians or magical people in history that made a system that has such far-reaching implications. We're talking about it today. It became fundamental to the Golden Dawn system of magic and is just... Do I need to say more? I don't think so. It's probably more accurate to say that Edward Kelly's success was arguably unparalleled. So let's take a glimpse at the real Magister Kelly. We have no clear idea what he looked like. The only portrait was done from reputation, a good 60 years after his death, by the Dutch engraver Franz Klein. It shows a gaunt, long-faced, bearded man, wearing a fur-trimmed cloak and a four-cornered hat like a cleric's beretta. However, this image is at odds with the few details we do have from contemporary sources. An English visitor in the fall of 1593 commented that he was, quote, fat and merry, and another noted that he was a weighty man. He walked with a stick, notoriously mentioned by Dr. D in his account of Kelly's altercation with one of Lasky's guards on the morning of his first visit with the emperor. These guys were just getting into trouble all the time, eh? <laughs> in the angelic sessions, his difficulty in kneeling is mentioned, and most revealing of all is the papal nuncio's characterization in 1586 of Kelly as Dee's hunchbacked Il Zopo companion. It must be remembered that Dee's diaries were written to be shown to people, especially in, <laughs> in most significantly probably other than Rudolf II, the Holy Roman Emperor, the Papal Nuncio. And the Papal Nuncios, I got to meet one once at, at Holy Rosary Cathedral in Vancouver. They report back to the, to the Pope and the um, Card College of Cardinals. So if you want to get to the Pope, you have to go through a Nuncio to get to the Cardinals. Und so weiter. And then there is the question of his ears, or lack of them. <laughs> The only solid evidence is from a letter dated in Prague, 20 July 1593, in which an Englishman named Christopher Parkins reports being interrogated about Kelly by one of Rudolph's counselors. Among the questions put to Perkins was if I could give any account of the diminishing of one of his ears or of his good or evil behavior in England. End quote. Parkins knew Kelly. He is the source of the fat and merry comment. Therefore, it seems likely that Kelly had had just one ear notched. If we see Kelly as a long-haired, bearded, heavy-set man with a sense of humor and a taste for the good things in life and with a bent or twisted back that required a stick for support, it helps not only to humanize the legend but perhaps also provides a few clues to his personality God, I can't imagine being as injured as it sounds like he was going up the stairs to Kelly's Tower up and down every day. I mean, that's why you have servants, right? But it's, uh, it's not the easiest thing even for uh, someone who's fit but overweight.
This, of course, does not take away from Kelly's predilection for violence, his hysterical rants, or his talent for insulting people. (laughs) But it is very different from the Faustian, demonic deluder of legend. When we add all of this together, we get a picture of a likable rogue, knowledgeable in many areas, and well used to hiding and creating useful personas as needed, and not above using his occult status as a means to an end. Kelly, we might say, craved approval and acceptance far more than love or affection. But the real core of Kelly's spell was his assumption of secret hidden or occult knowledge coupled with an awareness of human nature man's greed and gullibility he used these skills to great effect achieving along the way the faustian status he seems to have wanted joan cooper was already a widow when she married edward kelly and had two children her earlier marriage to john weston a clerk had taken place at Chipping Norton on 29th of June, 1579, and she buried him in the same church on 6th of May, 1582. Kelly's reluctance noted in Dee's diary may suggest he was under some kind of pressure to marry her. Whatever the circumstances, Joan's future and that of her two children were with Kelly in Bohemia. The Kelly family traveled with Dee's family to Trebon, although they are rarely mentioned in Dee's diaries. By the early 1590s, and let's note that they could have been mentioned in others of Dee's diaries that were lost, like half of which were lost, and some I think we just haven't really published much of. By the early 1590s, we can locate them in Prague, first at the complex of old houses at Naslavenach in Newtown, now known as the Faust House, and then at Kobowski's house on John's Hill. Joan's daughter, Elizabeth Jane Weston, was born in 1582, and later became famous as a Latin poet and scholar. She wrote an elegy on the death of her mother, published in Prague in 1606. This revealed the connection, for the Lady Joanna of the title turns out to be Joan Kelly, quote, a widow of the magnificent and noble Sir Edward Kelly of Imini, golden knight of his holy imperial majesty's council. In the text, Elizabeth speaks of her childhood, how her father died when she was still a baby, but the fates pitied her and provided her with a stepfather for which, quote, I was happy. Of her stepfather, she says simply, he loved me as another father. Here is an unsuspected piece of the Kelly enigma, the family man. We can allow him some credit, after centuries of bad press, as the protector and perhaps even educator of his scholarly stepdaughter. The household at the John's Hill House, known as the Donkey at the Cradle, included Joan's two children, John Francis, born in 1580 and died in 1600, and Elizabeth Jane. After the arrests at the Naslavanich House, the John's Hill was probably seen as a fortress. It is likely with Joan and the children hid at this more discreet address while Kelly was imprisoned at Crivoclat Castle. The family would have lived on the top floor, accessible only by a spiral staircase as an added precaution. Thomas Kelly and his wife Ludmilla also lived there at times in 1590s, and they, along with the tutors and servants, would have occupied the first floor. The ground floor contained the guard's room 
and the butler or chamberlain's office along with the kitchen and the stables. The alchemical laboratory would have been allocated to the crypts, and Kelly himself apparently used the attic and adjacent tower as his study. And that's the one I've spent so much time at and did a series of lectures at in 2019. Kelly returned to this residence after being pardoned and released from Crivoclat Castle and lived there until his rearrest in 1596. It was sold or confiscated in 1598 along with what remained of Kelly's holdings. Westonia, Elizabeth Jane, remained fond of Malastrana for the rest of her life and is buried in St. Thomas's Church in Latenska Street. Malastrana is that area of Prague that is so beautiful and where you'll find a lot of the tourist hostels and old town things and it's just really wonderful right there across from the charles bridge kelly's death there is only one account of kelly's death which has any claim to authenticity it comes from the manuscript by the czech alchemist simon tadius budek of leslin which i quoted earlier on the subject of kelly's ears it was written in about 1604 budek described himself as being rudolph's prospector for treasures, metals, precious stones, and all hidden secrets of nature. It is improbable he had met Kelly. His account, which has never been given in English before, runs as follows. Edward Kellius was sitting there in most castle, with his wooden leg and his missing ears and his long hair, and he was kept apart from his wife and daughter. Then, at Christmas time, in 1597, he climbed down from his prison. His brother was waiting with the cart below, but he fell into the moat and broke his other leg in three places. He was taken back to the castle for his injuries to be tended. He was going to be transported down to the emperor, in other words, to Prague Castle. He asked that his wife and daughter be permitted to visit him, and this was allowed. He spoke English to his wife and Flemish and Latin to his daughter. He asked to be given some water. Kelly and John D. In 1581, Dr. John D., perhaps the most learned man in Europe and the astrological advisor to Queen Elizabeth I, had an encounter with an angel. At least, that's the legend. D. was praying in the second-story chapel of his Mortlake home when a sharp rapping and a sound like a screech owl drew him to the curtained windows. Throwing aside the drapes, John Dee came face to face with a shining being floating a full twelve feet off the ground. The being gestured for Dee to open the window, and when he did, the shining figure handed him a smoky quartz egg about the size of a small man's fist. Dee took the quartz egg and the figure vanished. In the mid-19th century, as part of the same occult revival that brought us Swedenborg, Theosophy, and the original Golden Dawn, this legend became the centerpiece of Gustav Meyrink's romantic historical novel, The Angel of the West Window. It is easy from a modern perspective to dismiss the Angel in the Window incident as a superstitious legend, but the crystal still exists, on display in the manuscript room of the British Museum. Well, <laughs> Now it's, now it's gone, loaned to some wealthy nobleman and no doubt just stolen. Dr. D. kept careful records and made notes almost obsessively. We have notes on the construction of his other scrying glasses. 
as these types of crystals were known, but nothing except the above incident about the smoky quartz egg. Even Dee's first biographer, Merrick Casabon, who was anything but sympathetic, simply reports the origin of the crystal without comment. Not long after Dee recorded a rapping at his window, on March 8, 1581, one year to the day before Edward Talbot Kelly's arrival, and received the crystal, he made the first existing notes of his conversations with angels, or at least beings he took to be angels. That first working, through the scrying of a man with probably a pseudonymous name, Barnabas Saul, the archangel Anael appeared. You should note D spelt Anael with an A and double N, and uh, more commonly found in grimoires written with a single N, and it's the same name in Hebrew as that we find transliterated into English as Hanael. Though I'm sure there's also other Hanaels as well, but when you want to know if they're talking about the same angel, always go to the Hebrew word. For example, Oriel, Uriel, both written the same way in Hebrew because they're, they're referring to the same angel, more or less. Within a few more months, the alchemist and scryer Edward Kelly arrived at his door, and the two would launch into seven years of magical workings that took them from England to Krakow to Prague and Bohemia. These include the mysterious heptagonal working, which took place in 1588, as the Spanish Armada was sailing towards England and perhaps gave birth to yet another persistent legend that Dee and Kelly's magic helped create the storms that turned back the Spanish Armada. And by turned back, I think we mean destroyed utterly, so they had to rebuild and sail again, only to be destroyed again by storms for which Kelly may have credit as he was asked by Queen Elizabeth to do the same operation with the same angel of the Heptarchia, which is one of the angels I teach in the course. So check out enochiangrimoire.com for my course on how to get into this kind of stuff if it interests you. When scholars such as Dame Frances Yates write of William Shakespeare's Prospero being partially modeled on John Dee, it's not hard to see the Tempest as influenced by this legend. The Magus Prospero conjures a storm that wrecks the ship of his adversaries, and through the conjuring of spirits he has used to protect his island, all manner of ills are set aright. Indeed, as one studies the angelic workings, it becomes difficult not to see the similarity between Ariel and Uriel. Prospero's Prospero's angelic familiar and Dee's angelic informant, and even Caliban, Prospero's other magical servant, has a name strongly suggestive of the rulers of the Heptarchy. More recent scholarship, including that of the author, suggests that William Shakespeare, under the spy pseudonym Francis Garland, may have been present for Dee and Kelly's heptagonal working as well as some of their other continental adventures. And by heptagonal working, he's referring to the workings of De Heptarchia Mystica. Three years after casting the horoscope for Queen Elizabeth I's coronation, near the end of 1562, Dr. D departed for an important intelligence-gathering expedition to the continent. Espionage, in other words. The easiest way to follow his trail is by noting the manuscripts he collects. The first of these, Dee learned from 
of the manuscript's existence in Antwerp. He apparently spent almost all of his money and exhausted the use of different middlemen to obtain a draft. What appear to be the incantations that fill the first two books of Stenographia are actually arduous encryption schemes, but in the latter portion, Tritemius lays out a complex but incoherent, but coherent, but coherent method in which the magical images of cosmic forces are etched into wax to capture and manipulate their energies. Thus the cryptography and the magic cover for each other, and to this day, scholars argue about which was a blind for which. In books one and two, Tritemius directed his magic encryption codes toward the goal of long-distance communication via spirit messengers, a magical version of telepathic communication. All of this, of course, had immediate practical value for espionage. Why pay couriers if the spirits can deliver communiques more reliably? As Peter French noted in his biography of D, Tritemius's goal in this work is a form of telepathic communication that would be achieved by conveying the human spirit with the imprint of the sender's thought through the air to a recipient whose portrait the sender contemplates. The magic is implicitly a means of knowing all that is going on in the world, and the angel magic underlying the stenographia would have been far more significant to D than the treatises outward concern with cryptography. This was the beginning of Dee's quest for the direct experience of his radical truths. From Antwerp he departed to his visit many of the great hermetic thinkers and libraries of his time. In the winter of 1564 he wrote the Monus Hieroglyphica in one long 12-day explosion of insight. In spite of its intentional obscurity, the Monus Hieroglyphica became the Renaissance equivalent of a bestseller and attracted comment from the best minds of the next century and a half. At the center of the work is a talismanic diagram that resembles the astrological symbol for Mercury, but with some significant changes. From this symbol, D extrapolated a complex system of mystical geometry, which he thought embodied the underlying unity or monas of the universe. However, having no desire for a heresy charge, D left the application of this universal symbolism rather vague. His readers, who knew the code and could understand the meaning and imply practical implications, made D's work into one of the cornerstones of Renaissance alchemy. They thought that D had discovered a universal symbol that when engraved in the psyche, would allow man to experience the Gnostic revelation, this revelation in which all knowledge, gnosis, was received, then allowed one to operate as a lens or focus for spiritual activity. We can think of this idea as the basic definition of a shaman or a magician. After 1564, Dee published only mathematical and scientific works. His edition of Euclid, with the mathematical preface, appeared in 1570, and in 1577 his Perfect Art of Navigation was published. Virtually nothing else appeared in print in his lifetime. Apparently, during the 1570s, his interest in the quote-unquote radical truths came to outweigh everything else. Dee achieved earthly fame and made 
significant contributions to the development of several hard sciences in his own time. Increasingly, it must have seemed that only non-local, non-physical intelligences could answer D's ever more complex questions. From 1563 on, D had the tools and the basic understanding to embark on an exploration of angelic communication, the idea that had led him to copy Tritemius's with such excitement. His notes, however, record only a few attempts done without much enthusiasm, that is, until the angel rapped on his window. Dr. John Dee's first serious attempt at angelic communication on December 22, 1581, involved a man by the curious name of Barnabas Saul, one of Dee's servants, who acted as a medium or seer. Apparently he was a better footman than medium, for after a few sessions we hear little more about him. By March 1582, however, Dee's seer had located him. His diary reads, Mortlake. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. In the year 1582, on the tenth day of March, before noon, Saturday. One Mr. Edward Talbot came to my house, and he being willing and desirous to see or show some thing in spiritual practice. So begin Dee's notes of his first scrying session with his new seer, Edward Talbot Kelly. At first, Dee was suspicious of the younger man, and rightly so. Kelly appeared unannounced, offering a fake name. He might have been a spy seeking information on Dee's spirit conjurations. And even when identified, proved to have an unsavory reputation. Dee must have resolved his doubts, because on an early spring morning, a year and two days after Dee's first angelic visitation, they sat down for a trial run with the scrying stone and it's hard not to be impressed by the vivid quality of the quickly written notes of the proceedings. Kelly fell to his knees before Dee's desks and began to pray over the stone. Surprised, Dee took Kelly and the stone into his chapel or oratory. Within a quarter of an hour, Kelly began to see an angelic shape in the crystal, this being identified itself as the Archangel Oriel, accompanied by Raphael and Mikhail. D was hooked by this immediate success, and so began a long, strange relationship between these two men and the angels. For the next seven years, they conducted almost daily sessions. D, of course, wrote everything down in his spiritual diaries, and reading them becomes, after a while, an exercise in applied surrealism. As an example of a dialogue with the deep, unconscious other, they are unparalleled. Now, this author's idea that this is an example of dialogue with the deep unconscious other, of course, is a anachronistic projection on the past. There's, for example, no evidence that there is an unconscious other at all. At this first session, the Archangel Oriel revealed his sigil, a rather stylized energy signature, and gave preliminary instructions for a powerful talisman called the Sigil of Truth. Fashioned of wax... It was used in all future sessions as the base for the scrying crystal. It was actually not the sigil of truth, it was the siglum deamet, the sigil of God's truth or the true God. An important distinction, I think, between those two. This seal or sigil is, at first glance, similar to earlier ones by Agrippa and Reuchlin. 
but the version the spirits produced for Dee and Kelly is more detailed and aesthetically satisfying, designed as an embedded heptagram, heptagon, with a pentagram in the center, the sigil of truth, or SDA as magicians tend to call it in shorthand, SDA, theoretically acted as a template or pattern buffer for truthful communication. The sigil of truth, or SDA, also functioned as a geometric foundation on which the rest of the angelic system grew. Around the outer edge of the sigil is a series of letters and numbers. From these, the angels derived a series of great elemental names, which were said to describe the forces ruling each elemental tablet. The names of the angelic beings within the heptagon heptagram were transmitted in the form of letters arranged in squares. These squares were then read in different directions to produce even more angelic names. Today, this gives us the impression of a vast fractal universe in which the nature of the intelligence consulted depends on the symmetry angle of your approach. And that's a fucking brilliant insight. On March 26th, Kelly was shown a great book with the leaves also filled with squares. For the next 13 months, Dee and Kelly struggled to copy the contents of this angelic volume, despite interruptions and interference from the spirits. The records of these sessions are full of odd material, elemental distractions and strangely accurate prophecies. Sometimes the spirits wouldn't appear at all which is just another quick reminder to us to be doubtful of those who say they never fail in their magic and that it always works, eh? This behavior suggests that the spirits were of several types, with differing agendas, and that they had other things to do than wait for Dee and Kelly to show up for their lessons. Which is odd. If you think magic is just fantasy fulfillment, why would you sit down and take all that time to have a fantasy and then deny yourself that fantasy? <laughs> the vision of the book marked the first appearance of material concerned with the angelic language. In the last 5,000 or so years, more than 7,000 natural languages have been recorded. Human ingenuity has created perhaps another thousand, mostly for religious and magical uses. But we have no record of any language stranger than the one that emerged from these scrying sessions. Dee and Kelly's angelic or Enochian language is unique. Even now, it is impossible to tell if it is a natural or invented language, or whether it is, indeed, the language of the shining angelic beings. I'm not personally sure if that's the case. I think it's borderline glossolalia, but... Maybe maybe the jury's still out on that. Of course, Donald Laycock in his Nokian Dictionary, he was a linguist. So that's the best, I think, review I th of the language itself we've had. But perhaps there's been uh, more recent studies on how much of a language it is. It doesn't really interest me, since the last thing I need from a lang magical language is the ability to speak it in at the coffee shop. <laughs> Moreover, the way I believe that reality works in terms of its most basic form of ontological and uh, groundless ground, uh, it doesn't matter. The alphabet appeared first, 21 special characters, each with its own title. The titles are odd, with little relationship between title and the phonetic value of the character, and were dictated in three groups of seven, 
totaling 64 characters in all, which suggests another magical square arrangement. It also suggests the I Ching, the condons of DNA, and the Tzolkin calendar of the ancient Mayans. As an added bit of strangeness, 21 is exactly the number of symbols needed to transcribe phonetic English without confusion. These characters were then used to dictate the first texts in the angelic language. On Good Friday, March 29, 1583, the angels began with a slow, deliberate method. The angels spelled each word letter by letter, and then D wrote out the English and read it back to fill in a large 49 by 49 square, where each square was a word and each line a text. After two lines of text, D expressed a desire for a simpler method. Annoyed at the request, the angel departed. By the following Tuesday, when the session reconvened, the angels were prepared with a completed square from which Kelly could read off the text. Kelly, however, had not memorized the letters given the previous week. Annoyed again, the angel intervened. A voice. Read. Edward Kelly. I cannot. D. You should how learned the characters perfectly and their names, that you mout now how readily named them to me as you should see them. A voice. Say what thou thinkest. D. He said so to E. K. Edward Kelly. My head is on fire. A voice. What thou thinkest every word that speak. Edward Kelly. I can read all now most perfectly, and in the third row this I see to be read. Palce duxma ge na dem ho eleg. Extract here is from Sloan, Manuscript 3188, April 2nd, 1583. What happened here? The angel said, What thou thinkest every word that speak. And Kelly miraculously began to read. Kelly's my head is on fire comments suggest something very strange happened that afternoon. Did the angels, those non-earthly, non-local intelligences, force Kelly's consciousness into resonance with a language pattern coded into our very DNA? The texts that Kelly generated from the tables show to him by the angels resemble the vast literary mandalas of Tibet, and like them are full of phonetic patterning, repetition, rhyme, and alliteration. This type of verbal patterning is not found in normal speech, but is characteristic of poetry and magical charms, as well as speaking in tongues, or glossolalia. That is language produced under trance conditions. There is no question that Kelly was in some kind of trance during these sessions. D notes many occasions indicative of a deep trance state on Kelly's part. What were they smoking, eh? However, this does not mean that the language produced in these sessions was meaningless gibberish. The phonetic patterning is also similar to verb tense and other grammatical drills. Perhaps Kelly, with the help of these angels, were constructing in a trance state. The linguistic links his unconscious needed in order to receive a more complete form of the angelic language, but that developed from these original text-filled squares. The squares of the Liber Loga, 
or the book of the speech from God, as Kelly and Dee called the great book of his vision, did indeed form the basis of a new series of 49 invocations dictated in the spring of 1584, while Dee and Kelly were in Krakow, Poland. Unfortunately, the details of how this version of the Enochian language developed from the squares is very unclear. Also remember, of course, they didn't use the word Enochian for any of this. That was coined by the Golden Dawn for their adaptation and version of Dean Kelly's angel magic, which had the language in it called angelical or Adamic or Edenic variously. All we can be sure of is that it was generated somehow out of the previous tables and squares. And this time, a translation was provided right from the start. With these translations, we begin to find a real language emerging. The grammar and syntax are similar to English, perhaps because of Kelly's unconscious linguistic processes, but vocabulary elements, roots and prefixes and case endings are not directly derivable from English, Greek, Latin, or Hebrew. Some words suggest Sanskrit and ancient Egyptian roots, languages completely unknown to either Kelly or Dee. In 1586, Kelly and D found the patronage of the wealthy Bohemian Count Willem Rosberg. They settled in the town of Tribon and continued their researches. By then, Kelly had married Jane Cooper and adopted her daughter, the future poetess Elizabeth Jane Weston. In 1587, Kelly had revealed to Dee that the angels had ordered them to share everything they had, including their wives. It has been speculated that this was a way for Kelly to end the fruitless spiritual conferences so that he could concentrate on alchemy, which, under the patronage of Rosenberg, was beginning to make Kelly wealthy. Dee, anguished by the order of the angels, subsequently broke off the spiritual conferences, even though he did share his wife. He did not see Kelly again after 1588 and returned to England the following year. This account is dated and not actually quite accurate, as we now know. And there's significant evidence to point that they were part of this thing, I believe, called the Family of Love. Um, I heard Dr. Justin Sledge talking about that with Aaron Leach, and it seems they might have been part of some sort of uh, Elizabethan free love kind of community. So who knows? Future researchers will have to let us know. Let's talk about Shakespeare in Prague. Shakespeare in Prague? On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Francis Garland and William Shakespeare. During Dr. John Dee and Sir Edward Kelly's stay in Prague, a number of spies working for various factions of the English government followed, or perhaps accompanied their mission. As it is apparent from Dee's diaries that he and Kelly were also doing a little intelligence work, this comes as no surprise. The surprise, however, is the identity of one of those secret agents. Could the man we now know as William Shakespeare have been working as an English courier spy from the late 1580s, at least until the mid-1590s? Could he have been the man whom Dr. John D. called Francis Garland, who repeatedly visited D. and Kelly in Trebon at the height of their alchemical experiments. Francis Garland appears in Dr. D's diary from December 1586 through March of 1595, and in all that time we find not a single instance of Shakespeare being somewhere else when Francis Garland was visiting D. John D reports that 
Francis Garland and his brother, Edward Garland, were present at Kelly's Tower, public demonstration of the Philosopher's Stone. Edward and Francis Garland are also specifically referred to in one angelic conversation, where they are castigated as spies. Most of the dates for Francis Garland fall in Shakespeare's Lost Years. Hmm. Shakespeare left Stratford in the summer of 1585, and we know nothing of what he was doing until April 18, 1593, when his poem Venus and Adonis was registered in London. Not long after Shakespeare's rise to fame began, Francis Garland disappeared. By Garland's last visit to Dee in 1595, it is possible that both Romeo and Juliet and A Midsummer's Night Dream were finished and read with approval by Dee. Some kind of oral or family tradition connecting Edward Kelly and Shakespeare seems to have survived long enough for Elias Ashmole in the mid-17th century to pick up on it. In his 1652 anthology dedication of Edward Kelly's poem concerning the Philosopher's Stone, to Kelly's, quote, especially good friend, G.S. Ghent, calling William Shakespeare G.S. would not be much of a stretch, especially since Shakespeare's baptism records in Stratford-upon-Avon from April 26, 1564 list his name as Gulielmus Shakespeare. As a further bit of evidence, there are two notes or letters bound into the back of Sloan Manuscript 3191, containing these diaries that are signed Gulielmus. These have been variously attributed to Dee and Kelly's patron, William Rosenberg, but the contents do not support the attribution. They are backed by a description of the arrival of Francis Garland, functioning as some kind of messenger for Kelly and Edward Dyer, another English spy. A better supposition would be that these are notes from Francis Garland, signed with the Latin version of his real name, William if we make the identification of Dee's Francis Garland with the rising playwright William Shakespeare, then most of the mysteries surrounding Shakespeare's life disappear like actors at the end of a play. A sudden light is thrown on the so-called lost years, and a real person, not a cipher or a mask, emerges. This young Will didn't waste his time holding horses in front of playhouses and apprentice as an actor, he went directly to the source of the National Literary Renaissance, Sir Philip Sidney's group. And in that circle, he met Edward Dyer, who was perhaps in need of another bright young poet who could write quickly and cleanly, and so off to Prague as Francis Garland. On the Coasts of Bohemia Many of Shakespeare's plays have references to legends, events, and people that he would have encountered in Prague or on his travels with Dr. D. Perhaps most prominently bohemian were the plays presented at the royal wedding of Prague's winter king, Frederick, elector of the Palantate, and Elizabeth, daughter of James I. The winter's tale with its oddly bohemian locale and the tempest, which would, of course, suggest to his royal viewers the recently deceased Dr. D. as Prospero. Both of these plays are echoes of the reflections on his Prague experiences. In the winter's tale, Shakespeare gives Bohemia a seacoast. Rather than suggesting that Shakespeare knew nothing about the real Bohemia, 
This point suggests that he knew quite a bit about Bohemia's history. At the height of the Premislid dynasty's power in the 13th century, Bohemia did in fact have an Adriatic coast, reachable from Sicily, as Shakespeare describes. In the play, much uh, is made of that connection between Bohemia and Sicily, one that is not apparent in history until one examines the origins of Prague's castle cathedral. St. Vitus was a Sicilian saint donated to Prague by Henry the Fowler in 925 AD, and the future St. Vaclav built the rotunda that would over time become the cathedral. The king of Bohemia's name, Polixenes, strongly suggests a real person that Shakespeare probably met, Polixena Pernstein Rosenberg. The name also suggests a king who rules over many strangers, a name that was applicable both to the Premslis and to the Holy Roman Emperor. There are persistent rumors or legends concerning Shakespeare's visit to Prague that have survived to this day almost anonymously. These legends suggest that Shakespeare visited Prague 12 times, which matches very closely on the number of times Francis Garland visited Prague, 13, counting trips from Trayvon. These legends also connect Shakespeare with both Václav Budovec and Tadeusz Hajek, both known to be friends with D. and Kelly. There are many personal connections among the Prague alchemists to England, and Budovec and Hajek definitely had contacts there. Michael Meyer has also been suggested as one of Shakespeare's contacts, perhaps even assisting in Meyer's immigration to England after Rudolf II's death. Michael Meyer, of course, wrote the Atalanta Fugians and many other Rosicrucian texts. Shakespeare could have seen Shylock, of merchant of Venice, any day at the Ungelt money market. His knowledge of court protocol and the vagaries of monarchy could be observed and studied at Prague Castle. Hamlet may have been inspired by Shakespeare's return from Prague with D by way of Denmark. And there are many more such echoes of Shakespeare's experiences with D, and especially Kelly, to be found in his plays and poems. However, since this is not the place to examine them all, we will turn to two of the most interesting, A Midsummer Night's Dream and Romeo and Juliet. In many ways, A Midsummer Night's Dream is Shakespeare's most fascinating work. It is also one of the few plays by Shakespeare that have no directly attributable source. According to the best guesses of Shakespearean scholarship, A Midsummer's Night Dream was written sometime between 1593 and 1595, the years in which Francis Garland was traveling back and forth between England and Prague, taking messages and letters between Dee and perhaps Lord Burghley and Edward Kelly. In early 1590, Edward Kelly purchased several houses in Prague, including one on John's Hill, just below the castle. This, like most of the little quarter, the Great Fire of 1541 had burned out John's Hill, the remains of a large Gothic-style house that had been gutted by the fire was rebuilt by the mid-1540s into something close to a small fortress. With an enclosed central courtyard and a living area accessible only by a tower with a spiral staircase, as was customary, the house had a name, and possibly a sign that went with it. The name of the rebuilt house on John's Hill was the Donkey in or at the Cradle. This was probably a reference to the scene at Bethlehem, 
with even the animals bearing witness to Jesus' birth. It would have been known that by that name when Francis Garland arrived in the early 1590s with messages for Kelly. After Kelly's death, as his reputation became even more inflated and it confused with that of Faustus, a curious story developed. A local woman supposedly interrupted him at his studies, and as a punishment, he gave her a child, a donkey's head. Hence the donkey in the cradle. Kelly, with his claims of Irish nobility, Lord Imani, was one of his official titles, would have been very familiar with the Celtic Fae and their legends. It is not too difficult, in fact, to imagine that Kelly himself started the rumor concerning the donkey's head to frighten his neighbors. We can also imagine him relating it one evening over some good Czech pivo to a visiting messenger, Francis Garland, or William Shakespeare, with suitable elaborations. It is at Prague Castle itself that we find the starting point of our next play, Romeo and Juliet. On the 11th of January, 1587, Willem Rosenberg, the Burgrave of Bohemia and D. and Kelly's main patron at that point, married his fourth wife, the much younger and very fashionable Polexina Pernstein, in a ceremony at St. Vitus's Cathedral. Afterwards, they hosted an elaborate festivity in the Rosenberg Palace just across St. George's Square from the cathedral and tucked ostentatiously behind the old royal palace, as befits one of the foremost families in the kingdom. As part of the evening's events, the original Italian version of the masque, a sort of fashion show and dance with set pieces or tableau mixed in, of Romeo and Juliet was performed. We know from Dee's diary that Kelly attended. He returned to Trebon with a guest's present for Joanna. From the diaries, it would also appear that Francis Garland accompanied him to Prague and in all likelihood to Rosenberg's wedding. Therefore, Shakespeare, as Garland, watched the original Romeo and Juliet in a setting that was sure to overwhelm the young poet. The scene of Rosenberg's wedding mask is echoed in scene five of the first act of Romeo and Juliet. The entire scene, with its performance of a mask, suggests the original setting and circumstance under which Shakespeare observed it. The scene in Rosenberg's wedding mask is echoed in scene five of the first act of Romeo and Juliet. The entire scene with its performance of a mask suggests the original setting and circumstance under which Shakespeare observed it, and in that sense we might be forgiven if we look more closely at the moment for the source of Romeo's affections. Romeo describes her at first glance as hanging on the cheek of night, as a rich jewel in an Ethiop's ear, declaring that he never saw true beauty till this night. As Romeo moves to make contact with Juliet and is observed by Tebel, the action slows down, allowing Romeo and Juliet to perform a sonnet duet that is among Shakespeare's finest pieces of poetry. It also, through its introductory symbolism, points us toward the mysterious figure in Shakespeare's sonnet cycle known as the Dark Lady. Could it be that Shakespeare met his Dark Lady? object of some of his most powerful versed and deepest emotions at the Rosenberg's wedding? It seems distinctly possible. 
Polexina Pernstein was the center of a small circle of court beauties, and they would all have been at her wedding. The best candidate is one of Polexina's closest friends, the young wife of the current imperial chancellor, Katerina de montfort Hradek. Such a glimpse, or even, as suggested in the play, a brief contact, would have been enough to produce an explosion of poetic creativity, to Shakespeare, filled with Ovid and Sidney and fueled by medieval romances, such an encounter could only have been a gift from the muse. When we examine the Dark Lady sonnets, numbered 127 through 152 in the 1609 edition, we find a woman who matches, in many ways our most likely candidate. She is dark, most prominently with dark eyes and curly hair, musical in her tastes and somewhat imperious and unbending, as well as more than a little false in her actions. Sonnet 143 shows us that the Dark Lady is a mother, and the apparent age of the child matches that of the real young Adam II Hradek, Katerina's son. Shakespearean scholars such as Dr. Leslie Hodson have considered that the bulk of the sonnets, including the Dark Lady sequence, were composed in the late 1580s and early 1590s, and later polished circa 1595. This dating falling in the lost years and Francis Garland's years in Prague allows us to look favorably on a dark lady in Polixena's circle in Prague. But if Katerina Hradek is Shakespeare's dark lady, then what of that third corner of the triangle found in the sonnets? The rival poet? The sequence of sonnets from 76 to 86, inclusive, is known as the rival poet sonnets. In doubt is the identity of the rival poet. Certainly it is not George Chapman, who has been suggested due to lines in Sonnet 86 concerning familiar ghosts. This, however, is too late for the obvious Armada references in the same sonnet. The rival poet is also mentioned in the Dark Lady sonnets, and so we might suppose that these sonnets refer to that person as well. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast today thanks for sticking around till the end and if you do and want to check out my uh enochian grimoire.com course uh exploration of traditional and purist enochian magic you can do so with a 20 percent off discount using code d-r-d-y-e have a great day Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.